Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books in Environmental History. My name is David Fauser. I'm today joined by Jim Clifford, Associate Professor of Environmental History at the University of Saskatchewan and the author of West Ham and the River Lee, A Social and Environmental History of London's Industrialized Marshland, 1839 to 1914, University of British Columbia Press. Jim, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So could you begin by telling us uh, some of your personal background, how you became uh, an environmental historian and the the trajectory that led you up to the beginning of this research project? Sure. So I I completed an MA at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University, focused on a more of a cultural history of poverty in East London, uh, sort of representations of poverty in, in the 1890s around the period of New Unionism, and I applied to do a PhD at York University on a sort of slightly expanded version of that project. Uh, in the six months between proposing that and arriving uh, to start my PhD, I became kind of more interested in environmental politics and more aware that environmental history was kind of this growing subfield. So, decided to uh, do one of my fields in the history of science, environment, and medicine, this kind of combined uh, field at York. Uh, in the course of doing that field, uh, getting to know uh, Colin Coates, who was one of the, the field supervisors, uh, I became more and more intrigued with environmental history and, and began rethinking uh, how I could do a history of East London uh, through more of an environmental history lens as opposed to uh, the cultural social history that I'd done before, still bringing in Uh, my interest in in, uh, social and cultural history, but focus more on an environmental topic. So I started looking for uh, something compelling. I thought about maybe a history of of one of the big parks in East London. Then I stumbled across uh, John Marriott's work and realized there was a a second significant river that uh, flowed through a, a major industrial zone 
through the lower Lee Valley and into the Thames right on the eastern edge of London uh, during the time period I was interested in. Uh, Marriott had done his work in the 1980s and uh, there was some attention to environmental issues there, but it really wasn't the focus. So I thought this was a good opportunity to uh, explore the history of a river. There'd been lots of great work in American environmental history that uh, had sort of rivers at their focus and a few, uh, at that point, a few European environmental histories of rivers, but not a lot in Britain aside from a, a book on the Thames Embankment uh, that had been done at that point. And so the River Lee then and the Lee Valley really gets you to West Ham. It gets you this East London connection that you've had for, for some time. And it gets you into poverty and unionism as well, but with an environmental dimension. And then onto that, you added HGIS. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about, about HGIS as a, as a method and, and how you came to that and, and how you were able to apply that here in this study? Sure. So I first arrived at the Newham uh, Local Studies Library and Archive in, uh, in Stratford and in what was West Ham. And one of the first things that the uh, staff showed me were these large... Uh, five foot to the mile ordnance survey maps of the area. And they're kind of overwhelming when you first experience them as, uh, as printouts. Uh, hang on, it's hang on. It's very difficult. Can I just clarify? You said five feet to the mile. Yes. Wow, that's so enormous. very, very high resolution. They're just enormous, which means each individual map is oh, something like a meter by a meter and only, uh, encompasses a small part of, of this one suburb in East London. Uh, and then they have two of these ordnance surveys, one uh, where the surveying was done in uh, mostly the early 1870s, and then it was resurveyed in uh, 1893 to 1895. So you're sitting there uh, on a big table trying to compare two giant maps to kind of get a sense of how the landscape changed. And I left the archive, you know, kind of feeling overwhelmed, but also spending a lot of money on these uh, reproductions of the maps that were available. Um, I got home and within a few weeks after that trip, I had a chance to just sit down for lunch with Bill Turkell, uh, who asked me about my project and I explained a little bit about it. And he he said, well, I guess you're going to use GIS then. And at that point, uh, I was still pretty committed to not learning how to use PowerPoint, uh, avoiding almost any kind of uh, you know, digital uh, technology beyond a word processor. So I, I kind of at first didn't know how to respond, didn't really know what GIS was, uh, but uh, he convinced me that it was something I needed to look into. Uh, about a year later, I finally had some competence uh, because of some uh, great help from actually the UFT map library and Marcel Fortin uh, taught me the kind of basic skills I needed to be able to do the work properly. And after, uh, I think, one database that I had to completely uh, delete and start over because I'd done it all wrong, I started uh, kind of recording all the key features uh, in these scanned maps that I stitched together and uh Geo-referenced and then found all the factories, all the major streets, uh, and an array of other kind of landscape features in these two different time points, and was able to start to really systematically look at how the the built environment and and the landscape transformed between 
kind of the beginning of, of the really rapid urban industrial development in the region and its peak in the 1890s. What would you say is the, the timeline of this rapid industrialization? What are the key moments? So it really gets started with the arrival of the railroad in 1839. So that's where I, I really start the book, although I, I do look at uh, some early developments of calico printing and a, a few small factories that are, are built along the, uh, the main road through northern West Ham and earlier in the 19th century. So, yeah, but it, it's I- really... At, sorry, could could we spend just another couple minutes on that to get to eighteen thirty nine? What what is the place like before yeah. this industrial sort of uh, blooming in the middle of the nineteenth century? So we're really lucky that the first uh, ordnance survey, not five feet to the mile, but still a, a very decent map, is done eighteen oh five for Essex. So we have this map where we can see that most of what in the parish of West Ham what becomes the borough of West Ham. Uh, well, at least about half of it is marshland. And you can really see that uh, there's almost no buildings on the marshland. This is considered unhealthy landscape. It, it probably was still malarial uh, into the beginning of the, the 19th century. So they built their houses uh, on the edge of the marsh. Uh, they reclaimed quite a bit of the marsh for market gardening, uh, vegetable gardening, and also to fatten cattle on their way in. Uh, to the city. So it was used pretty intensely uh, for agriculture, um, but uh, it was still kind of this uh, this wetland that had agricultural ditches to sort of make it more useful. Uh, some walls along the river to keep the flooding at bay, uh, but the map still labeled as marshland at the beginning of the 19th century. And so some of those interventions into the uh the sort of water landscape there were quite old. Is that is that right? That some of them go back to the 17th century or even before? Yeah, my understanding of, of uh, the medieval history, this is based on the work of others, is that this area had been uh, pretty uh, heavily reclaimed up until the Black Death. Uh, large parts of the Thames estuary uh, reclamation then are sort of allowed to I go back to marshlands because it's very labor intensive to, to maintain these defenses. And then uh, during the mid 16th century, they slowly start uh, doing that work again and over the centuries, the sort of two centuries that follow. Uh, they re- reclaim a few thousand acres of, of marshlands for agricultural use. And that kind of gets us up to the, the start of the 19th century in this new uh transformation towards urban industrial use. Were the borders of West Ham fairly stable? Yeah, fairly stable as a parish. Uh, as with everything in London, there's kind of overlapping definitions. So the West Ham Poor Law Union is much larger than the West Ham Parish and later the borough. Uh, but yeah, more or less, uh, it's with small alterations uh, stable between the early 19th century and, and it's uh, when it's abolished in 1965. So we have this, uh, I guess we could say an agricultural suburb of the metropolis, which has gone through some changes. There's been some ebb and flow, but then things really get moving quite dramatically in new directions in the late 1830s with the arrival of the railroad. Can you pick it up from there? 
Yeah, so the, the railroad uh, comes first. You know, basically, they're uh, limited in the early 19th century in how much you can expand industry because most industries relying on either uh, tidal uh, water power or, or windmills. But with the arrival of the railroad and with steam engines more generally, uh, we see a real intensification of industrialization. Uh, so first, sort of a lot of it happens in the lower Lee Valley along these kind of braided back rivers, uh, most of which are probably uh, at least partially artificial dug for water mills at some point in time. Uh, it's a, a good place for industrialization at this point because you have access to the railroad to bring the product to market into the city and access to the waterway to carry the coal uh, that you need for uh, powering the steam engines or, or heating uh, the industrial process uh, at the factories. And at this point, coal is just too expensive to move by rail. So uh, you'll notice looking at, at my maps of industry across Greater London, almost all the factories, especially factories built uh, during the 19th century are built very close to a waterway. And so, so they would consume all this coal that was brought almost always by water. And then the finished articles, and I suppose some of the other raw materials as well, came in on rail? Yeah, I think the rail is probably mostly used uh, for finished articles. Uh, the rail does a f- railway does a few other things. Uh, soon after the, the main line comes out, they build an extension down to North Woolwich. Uh, and that opens up uh, the south of West Ham. You get the very first factories and uh, Silvertown on uh, on the Thames, uh, right down at the bottom of West Ham. Uh, a rubber factory is located there in the mid 1850s, uh, and then this also eventually uh, is the location where they, where they build a, a major dock, the Victoria Dock, um, uh, the largest dock I think in in London at the time, and so this is uh, the second big. Uh, piece of, of transportation infrastructure that helps spur off the, the incredibly rapid urban industrial development in the second half of the 19th century. So that dock comes in 1855. When the dock or when the railroad first and then the dock are financed and constructed, are they done with a specific intention to develop this region? I mean, do they, do they look at this and say, wow, here's this region of marshland but if we had a railroad there, we could really do something with it. I, I think the railroad is, you know, it's the railroad, the Great Eastern Railroad heading uh, out of the city. So I don't think that's the kind of core goal. The dock is attracted, or the dock builders are attracted to the area because it's going to be cheaper uh, to construct the dock because the land is so low. It's, it's lower than high tide in the Thames estuary. It means you have to excavate a lot less dirt, which presumably is still a very ex- expensive process using uh, steam and, and uh, animal and human power. Uh, so it, that was kind of one of the main reasons to locate the dock in this otherwise very uh, remote location in the mid-19th century. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of the railroad as going elsewhere. Does it go through, is this like the London to Colchester route or something like that yeah it splits so one of the lines does go to colchester i believe and another one heads sort of northeast 
that splits in Stratford. And then there's a, a second line that uh, is now a part of the tube system that kind of goes out to the edge of, uh, of greater London, of modern greater London. All right. And so they begin to build factories in West Ham that are relying on coal brought by water, uh, as well as the rail links. Uh, what kinds of uh, facilities are these? And if you could, uh, if you could point out some of the neighborhoods that they're in today. Yes, yeah, so there's two main centers of industry in, in uh, West Ham. The first is uh, the Lower Lee Valley, uh, basically in the western edge of Stratford, uh, and, and most simply is basically where the Olympics uh, were developed uh, in the past decade. So uh, the Queen Elizabeth Park today uh, was sort of the northern edge of, of uh industry and, and the whole area has gone through uh, a massive redevelopment since I started this project uh, with you know, new condo buildings uh, being constructed every every time I get to the area. Uh, so these are mostly fairly small factories, at least by the uh, standard of the later 19th century. They did a whole array of things, uh, you know, some of the early ones were kind of small chemical factories making uh, or burning lime, uh, small kind of uh, fine chemical company that eventually becomes the main producer of quinine in in Britain. Um, lots of dye and uh, and other fertilizer and other chemical factories. So it really kind of drew some of the more noxious factories uh, and. You know, it's been argued since the 1850s that they arrived in the area because uh, there, there was less regulation than on the London side of the border, uh, which I think is it's partially true, but it was probably overstated at the time because when we look at uh, all the factories on the London side of the border, there's really no shortage of noxious factories in southeast London uh, or along the Isle of Dogs. So whatever public health regulations there were, in greater, uh, sorry, in, in London itself, they weren't being uh, strictly enforced. But I still think uh, factory owners probably saw the risk as being slightly lower in this industrial suburb where they could dominate the politics. Uh, whereas there's always a future risk that the London government would become more aggressive. So I think it's a partial explanation, but it, it has to be alongside uh, just how crucial the waterway was and, and how the lee provided all these kind of uh, free transportation network. There was no toll to move goods along the Lee, uh, whereas the canals, like the Regent Canal or the Surrey Canal, uh, you would have had to pay a, a toll to move your, your goods along that, which would increase the cost of, uh, of industrial production along a canal. So West Ham then really sits at the nexus of kind of multiple, both human and environmental uh, dimensions. You, you have the proximity of the metropolis and the railroads coming into and out of it, along with the particular position of the river. And so I guess we could say the river here, the River Lee, is doing a lot of work for these factories in that it provides transportation. Is Is the water in the river as water, is it a vital resource for these factories as well? Are, are these factories using a lot of water for their, either for production or for waste uh, disposal? 
So unfortunately, this is something that's really hard to nail down. So a, a simple answer is yes, because uh, much of the water that came through the uh, the water system, the water supply, uh, was taken out of the lead to the north of West Ham, uh, brought through filter beds and pipes and, and, and down into West Ham. So if they're using uh, water from the East London Waterworks Company, then a lot of it would have been uh, diverted lee water. I have to imagine for some industrial processes, they could use the dirty water, but uh, as the, the decades uh, wore on, uh, you really didn't want to use uh, the lee water because it was so full of pollution. We can, there's this one uh, example that we can see that calico printing had been very strong in the region. In fact, it's one of the first industries that arrives in the region in the uh, 18th century, partly drawn there because of the purity of the River Lee water. Uh, and all of the calico printers are gone uh, by about the 1870s, I think. The water's become too dirty for them to continue to operate in the region. So my guess, based on, on that kind of limited evidence, is that uh, mostly they would have used piped water, uh, but probably for some industrial processes, uh, the kind of dirty uh, probably also somewhat brackish because it is still tidal uh, water could have been used. And, and you point out though, that a big draw on the river Lee is the East London waterworks, which draws upstream the, the relatively cleaner water, but that's essentially municipal water for, uh, for households and, you know, other, other sort of small establishments, right? Uh, but industry would have relied on, on that water supply as well. Right. Okay. And so when does, when does the East London Waterworks come into being? Uh, I believe it's late 18th or early 19th century. Uh, the, the new river company dates much further back, I think, to the uh, 17th century. They're also diverting Lee water from um, further north down into central London. It's the first... Uh, private water company that, that brings this fresher water supply into the center of London. Uh, East London Waterworks Company is established later on as the population of East London starts to grow rapidly and there's a, a new demand for for a water supply in the East. For for both residential and, and business. And and yes. definitely population growth comes with with industrialization, can you describe the population growth of, of the region? Yeah, it's fairly remarkable. Uh, it starts off around 6,000 people, the first census in 1801, uh, and grows to over a quarter million by uh, 1901, a, a century later. Uh, and much of the really rapid growth comes in the... Uh, 1870s, 80s, uh, and 1890s, and then it starts to level off in the first few decades of the 20th century, uh, peaking in, in finally in 1921, before it starts a, at first slow and then a, a fairly rapid decline in the middle of the 20th century. What's the population of it now? Do you know offhand? Uh, recently, I think the population of Newham has, has reached... Uh, somewhere around what the population of West Ham was. And Newham is the combination of uh, West Ham, East Ham, and North Woolwich. Mm. Um, 
I think it's over 300,000, but yeah, I can't remember. It's, it's been growing quite fast since uh, the beginning of the 21st century. Interesting. So we have we have a real ebb and flow of people in this region. But without a doubt, the late 19th century is a period of absolutely tremendous growth, of exponential uh, growth. Um, how does the region handle this growth? Uh, and, and what kind of effect does this have on the Lee River and on, on the waterscape there? So this is a challenge from the beginning. I, I look at these two really interesting documents produced in the mid-1850s just as the uh, docks are being built and uh, the, the influx of uh, a new population, especially down onto the, the former marshlands, this kind of reclaimed agricultural land begins in, in the 1850s with the arrival of the docks. Uh, first, Alfred Dickens, the uh, brother of the famous author, who's a civil engineer, is sent in to write a report to see whether uh, the parish needs uh, its own board of health and he documents uh, pretty kind of appalling conditions and really makes uh, a connection that I think remains throughout the rest of uh, the century and into the, the 20th century. Uh, he makes the connection between kind of difficult environmental conditions and, uh, and, and social problems in the region. So not surprisingly, uh, people who end up living in these really dirty uh, and, and to a certain extent dangerous environmental conditions are people with very little uh, social capital, very few options. They, they arrive because there's work at the docks, there's work building the docks, and then later work uh, and loading ships at the docks. And uh, they end up in kind of the worst uh, social conditions and the worst environmental conditions in the region. And can you describe the social conditions? Are we talking about uh, very poor quality housing? We're we talking about high rates of disease, uh, low wages. Are there? I mean, those are the sort of typical dimensions we might expect in a Victorian city. Uh, is West Ham typical in that way, or does it have its own particular characteristics? Yeah, in, in many ways, West Ham uh, is an extension of the East End of London. Uh, with, with slight differences in that most of the housing is a bit newer, uh, but a lot of it was built uh, sort of by speculative uh, jerry builders. So especially the early housing built in the 1850s and 60s uh, is a very low quality. Uh, they're building on this marshland, uh, and it's described in a few of the sources that maybe they bring, bring in a, a certain amount of kind of basically garbage uh to bring up the level a, a certain amount and then build a house on top of that. So uh, by the turn of the uh, 20th century, they have major problems with their foundations. But basically, it's, it's really cheaply built housing. Uh, and then on top of that, you often end up with two or more families uh, living in these uh, two up, two down houses that were constructed for, for one single family. So you end up with this sort of intense overcrowding in poorly built housing. And if you look at a, a map of uh, particularly Canning Town, which is down uh, just north of the docks, built on the, the former marshlands, uh, and you look at the, the way the streets were laid out, uh, it was the, the marsh drainage ditches that kind of shaped the pattern of Canning Town. So 
uh, at least some major problems early on because these ditches are not uh, designed to be sewers. They're designed to uh, keep the water table down enough so you can fatten cattle or grow potatoes. Uh, when you start dumping human waste into these ditches, uh, most of it just sits there for, for months at a time, as Alfred Dickens uh, found. And then, uh, you know, every year or two, there's a major flood that would uh, clear out the sewage and just spread it right across the landscape and into the homes. So the uh, constant exposure to human waste was, was kind of a pretty dramatic uh, public health challenge in these early decades. It gets better as the decades go on. You know, eventually they do uh, build a pipe sewer network uh, that, that gets the sewage out of people's backyards. But a lot of it for, uh, you know, through to the end of the 19th century is then just dumped uh, into the lower River Lee, uh, where the tide moves it up and down uh, throughout the daily cycle. And you know, it takes a while to, to finally get flushed out uh, to see. So uh, human waste remains one of the big challenges uh, for local environmental conditions and, and, and public health in the region. And can we connect that to specific epidemiological problems or indicators of health? Yeah, so there's a, a chapter in the book that really focuses in on on this challenge that the, the region faces. And the best indicator is uh, infant mortality, which is uh, at least the fluctuation is largely driven by diarrhea, um, which becomes a bigger problem in hot weather over the summer and declines over the winter. Um, we can also see in a few of the other uh, sort of diseases that are spread through human waste, like uh, typhoid fever um, and cholera, uh, which there's an outbreak in 1866. The last cholera outbreak in London uh, is kind of its epicenter is in the Lower Lee Valley. Now, you mentioned earlier that one of the things that attracted some developers to West Ham is that they could escape regulation or, or the threat of regulation within the city uh, itself, right? I, I wonder, you know, because if, if we think of cholera epidemics in, you know, early or, or mid-Victorian uh, Britain, we think of some of the earlier epidemics in central London, uh, and then and then there's some remedies to these. Uh, so the, the London mainline sewer is completed in what about 1860 or so. And, and so shortly after that, yeah. so does West Ham sort of lag behind uh, in, in these measures to, to help combat disease. And, and I guess we could say lag behind in the sanitary movement uh, more broadly. Yes. That's a slightly complicated question. I, I probably mostly urge people to, uh, to go to Christopher Hamlin's, excellent work on 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 this topic and, and bill luke and i've tried to uh to look at it myself uh in, in the context of west ham and the river lee uh but the the simple answer is that today we look back at the broad street pump um and you know see it as this kind of remarkable moment in the history of medicine when uh uh, when snow identifies water as the vector for the spread of the disease. But she doesn't sort of immediately convince uh, all medical professionals or uh, the courts that, that his new theory is in fact correct. So in 1866, when cholera arrives again, 
there's strong suspicion that it's the East London Waterworks uh, reservoirs that are uh, built far too close to the River Lee uh, and that there's seeping of water uh, from the River Lee, which has sewage in it, into these kind of open reservoirs that are immediately adjacent to the river. Uh, but there's still enough doubt, enough scientific doubt, that, uh, that officials are reluctant to uh, blame the East London Water Works Company alone. Because they see all kinds of other evidence of this sort of strong correlation between poverty and filth and bad smells and the centers of, you know, the worst cholera uh, death rates in East London. So they're still not entirely sure. You know, there's a strong suspicion. There's definitely some scientific experts uh, that, you know, are convinced that East London Waterworks Company was solely responsible. Uh, but there's still quite a bit of, of doubt. Um, so, again, uh, Hamlin is, is the historian who's really looked into that in, in great detail. But West Ham was a part of the wider East London uh, water network. It happened that this company had these poorly constructed reservoirs in the northern edge of West Ham. But it, it's not because West Ham was behind the times or had less of a regulatory regime. In fact, uh, the East London Water Companies uh, did break regulations. They weren't meant to have any big open air reservoirs feeding into to London. So they were fined for that particular infraction because regulations existed that just hadn't been properly enforced. Interesting. So, so you said in the regulatory regime... Uh, although the perceived lack of one may have contributed to some extent in the early development, we really don't see a whole lot of difference in, say, how West Ham is is governed versus how other municipalities would be. Yeah, I, I think that's that's largely true. You know, this is definitely a, a point of contention, uh, depending on which historian right. uh, you read and. Um, you know, Chris Otter and others have made kind of different points. Um, but there's just too many dirty industries left within the boundaries of the Metropolitan Board of Works and later the County of London to uh, have me fully convinced that there's kind of this big jurisdictional draw to West Ham. And of course, by the end of the century, uh, West Ham flips and becomes this this hotbed of social democracy and, and tighter uh, enforcement and, and regulation, which probably does eventually drive some of the businesses out of the area. Um, but yeah, you know, to what extent factories arrived in the 1880s, I think there's got to be some truth to it, and it, it's probably not just um, it's not just about municipal government, it's also just remoteness. So the, the second major zone of industry is this area called Silvertown. Uh, in fact, it's one of the only parts of London that still has a few large-scale industries, the uh, Tate and Lyle Sugar Factory is still in operation. So this is the whole area in the south of West Ham that fronts on the Thames. Uh, it's, it's very remote, so it allowed uh, much larger factories to be constructed and they could offload raw materials directly from ocean-going vessels, which uh, gave this region kind of a, a pretty strong competitive advantage for, for large-scale industrial uh, manufacturing. And so I think if Silvertown had been a part of the County of London 
or the Metropolitan Board of Works, I think it would have developed in a fairly similar way because of its remoteness, uh, because they knew there wasn't going to be a lot of complaints about uh, smoke pollution or or other you know environmental concerns when almost nobody lived anywhere near the region. So yeah, I, I think it's a factor, but it can be uh, overstated, especially in some of the uh, primary sources from uh, the 1850s through to the early 20th century that kind of uh, presented as the, the sole factor, the main factor for industrialization in West Ham. Right. Now, West Ham does have somewhat different living conditions to, say, uh, the East End of London, which you, you outline in the book. Can you describe a little bit more about the social history of you know the, the basic experience of living in West Ham versus other parts of the metropolis? Yeah, so I think that the main difference is, is just that it's on the edge of the metropolis at this time period. Um, so Peter Thorsheim has done this excellent work on kind of the, the desperate effort to build parks in the old East End where they uh, cleared graveyards uh, because there was so little open space and you know actual concerns with kids getting rickets because they had so little exposure to sunlight in this very dense uh, urban landscape in a, you know, an area like Whitechapel. When you get out to uh, West Ham, uh, there's still quite a bit of open land intermixed between the factories and uh, the, the new streets of, of housing that are springing up constantly over the last decades of the, the 19th century. Some of this is uh, through actual efforts. There's West Ham Park, uh, which was um, bought by the Corporation of the City of London uh, and kind of donated as a, a charitable act. So a, quite a sizable park in the heart of West Ham. Uh, and a, a few other recreation grounds that are, are preserved by the, the borough council uh, to provide uh, space for um, for recreation for, for the, the people of West Ham. But you also just get areas of kind of open marsh uh, that are never developed for either uh, industry or housing. That you know, the limited oral histories we have from people who lived here at the time kind of described. Uh, you know, catching birds and allotment gardening and you know, just other kind of activities in this uh, hybrid uh, natural space that was not easily available to a kid growing up in uh, Whitechapel in the, in the same decade. So uh, being this kind of area on the edge with constant change, constant development, a lot of instability had a lot of negative consequences for the people living in the area. But uh, there were some clear benefits, access to allotment gardens, access, just open green space, uh, the ability to basically walk out of the city. Uh, within five to 10 kilometers, you could go north, uh, east, or take a, an under river tunnel uh, into the, the hills in Kent, uh, you know, you could go for a walk with your dad to a, a pub way out, uh, on, you know, in the countryside, uh, pretty readily from Canning Town, and that is described in in some of the oral histories. Just that access uh, to the rural landscape, which is in fairly close proximity still, at the turn of uh, the twentieth century. 
So if we wanted an example of a kind of urban-rural interface, I mean, West Ham is it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, this is per, you know, precisely what my book's about, is this these decades were transforming from a, a still predominantly rural landscape to a heavily industrialized and uh, populated with a quarter million people. But even in the 1895 maps, I think I find five or six farms that are still uh, in West Ham itself. And there's uh, significantly more farmland just uh, over the border of West Ham into East Ham or north into uh, the Lee Valley. So uh, it's this kind of patchwork landscape that continues uh, to have heavy industry and densely populated suburbs uh, in close proximity to uh, a working farm, uh, a large area of uh, marshland that hasn't been developed and is, uh, is used as allotment gardens, or just sort of uh, open marshland that uh, you, know, you could wander through and, and connect to the countryside in the north or the east. Now you also describe in the book how the the rapid industrialization uh, and the intense industrialization of this region has profound effects on on the water you know on the waterscape that is there and ultimately has pretty negative effects for industry. Can can you talk about that? Can you talk about some of the some of the drawbacks that emerge for industry in West Ham over time? Yeah, so this is a real benefit of doing the work with HGIS that we started talking about a little while ago. Uh, it, it's fairly painstaking work. And in the dissertation uh, stage of this project, uh, I worked with these five feet to the mile maps and just identified every factory, every street, uh, all the rivers uh, within West Ham. Uh, and the process of, of doing that kind of data entry of, of uh, creating these little polygons across every factory, you start to notice not just uh, the change that happened, but the change that didn't happen. Um, so that kind of started to raise questions in my mind. Why are there all these factories along Carpenter Road, but on the other side of uh, this, this particular back river, it never gets developed? Why does Mill Mead never get developed? Uh, and so, you know, that led me back to the archival sources, and I found increasing discussion in the late 1890s, in the first years of the 20th century, and just the uh, terrible condition of uh, the back rivers in particular. So these are, are rivers that were never uh, turned into actual canals, um, and in the mid-19th century were, were quite passable uh, by barge, but as they kind of filled in with garbage, with uh, uh, material brought by the river from, from the north. Uh, over time, they became so clogged uh, and, they, and nobody was responsible for dredging them that you could only pass up many of these rivers uh, during the spring tide, so the, the highest tide in the monthly cycle. You know, so there'd be a day or two, maybe three days uh, that these rivers were passable during the high tide. And then uh, that whole area wouldn't uh, be accessible by boat for another uh, lunar cycle. So there's 
constant discussion about the need to address this problem uh, starting in the 1890s, but uh, for a whole variety of reasons, nothing is ever done. And, and we kind of see uh, the end of industrial expansion in this region as the, the rivers became, uh, the rivers that once drew industry to the region became so uh, polluted and damaged that uh, they're actually kind of actively working against the economic success of the region. That combines with a few other uh, major changes, uh, electrification, uh, the use of, of trucks on roads uh, that we see in uh, greater London, that uh, the, the factories that are built in the early 20th century, especially in the interwar period, uh, mostly happen up the Lee Valley or uh, in Brent in, in northwest London. Uh, a few other uh, main regions where uh, uh, sort of roads and railways uh, are, are more important in uh, shaping uh, the location of industry uh, by the 1920s than rivers are. Because you know, why would you want to build on a, a factory on marshland that uh, floods every few years uh, if you don't need uh, the river to, to deliver coal? Uh, if you can use electricity as your main source of energy, energy, then uh, there's no good reason to build on marshlands anymore, unless you have some kind of uh, other major raw material that you need to bring in by boat. Yeah, I thought that that dimension was such a fascinating part of this whole study was the, the, the very relatively short temporal window in which it made sense to industrialize and develop this region, and how then that that window really, really closed. And this, uh, this, I think, gets us to uh, the second half of the of the book, which which is really about the the way that environmental conditions shape uh, the politics of the region, and West Ham becomes well known for its uh, its politics in support of labor and social democracy, and and you really jump into this issue with the municipal election in the late eighteen nineties. Can you can you start us there and then walk us through? Sure. So West Ham is. Uh, in fact, it's known for two firsts in British uh, labor political history. It's the first place to elect an independent labor MP. There'd been a, a few uh, labor MPs that were sort of in coalition with the Liberal Party. Uh, but uh, Keir Hardy is the first independent uh, with no affiliation with the Liberal Party to get elected uh, in 1893. He's a Scottish uh, labor activist, but... Uh, runs in this seat where he thinks he has the best chance of winning. Uh, he only lasts in Parliament for two years uh, and loses the next election. So the next big uh, sort of step forward for Labour is the victory of the Labour Group in 1898. Uh, this is a couple of years before uh, what becomes the National Labour Party is established. So uh, really at the forefront of, of this kind of new uh, labor politics that, that's developing in a few uh, centers around uh, Britain at the time. And so most of the previous historiography focused on the importance of new unionism, so efforts to unionize unskilled laborers at docks, at, uh, at the big coal gas uh, works that are located in and around uh, West Ham. And uh, the Brian May uh, match girls strike uh, a few years uh, in 1889, I think, or 1888. It's kind of these uh, crucial developments in uh, 
in labor history and, and people um, forming into to unions as being the main factor that explains uh, the early success of labor politicians in the region. And I, I, I don't take away from that being a major factor, but I don't think it's the, the sole factor. I think uh, people's experience of living in this very unstable, flood-prone, dirty environment uh, created a, another kind of uh, alienation and grievance from uh, the wider establishments in London, a sense that people in East London, people in West Ham, were at a significant disadvantage from uh, people in West London or South London who didn't deal with the same uh, constant environmental challenges that they did in, in uh, the East End and in West Ham. So this gets us to a, a particular event that's mentioned in passing in the earlier histories of, of this 1898 election, a prolonged uh, water famine where they turned off the water uh, for about 20 hours a day. So they turned on for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. So this uh, begins at the end of August in 1898, and it's still uh, in effect when the election happens in early November. There's kind of two separate votes uh, in, in the municipal political system at the time. They happen about a week apart in uh, early November. And so for a variety of reasons, one, the franchise is still fairly restricted. So a lot of the people who are involved in new unionism uh, don't necessarily have the vote. Uh, and, you know, based on the fact that conservatives can continue to win the national elections on either side of this 1898 breakthrough, also that uh, the labor group is, is thrown out of power two years later. So there's still a lot of factors working against the success of a, uh, a labor coalition that's a mix of uh, of socialists and also some liberals who are just committed to the labor cause. Um, so I'm fairly, or I'm convinced, I argue in the book, that it takes this uh, environmental uh, event, a, a prolonged drought uh, and an inefficient monopoly water supply system uh, that creates this grievance that can uh, get more centrist liberals behind this new upstart political movement. Uh, and we see this very clearly in the liberal newspaper uh, who abandon their support for uh, the liberal politicians and endorse uh, the labor group kind of despite their socialism, um, but because they'd shown such strong leadership on the water question. Uh, so I, I think it's really kind of crucial to look in tandem uh, the way that consumer politics around this crucial uh, utility, the water supply, uh, combined with uh, with labor politics and, and kind of allowed this early victory to happen in, in West Ham uh, a few years before anywhere else in the country. In a sense, it, it, it almost reinforces a kind of... Um it sort of almost deepens the materialism of a kind of Marxian analysis of class consciousness and, and, you know, political response by suggesting that it's not merely the sort of working conditions, but also the broader 
uh, environmental conditions as as a basic material reality that is people's water. Yeah, like to a large extent, this work that I'm doing is, is kind of in response to much of what I read, uh, you know, as, as a comprehensive student at the beginning of my PhD, where uh, British cultural and social historians, uh, some really turned away from materialism uh, and, and became fixated on, on language as, as this kind of uh, core element that mediated the way uh, politics developed and really argued that we see much more of a continuity in, in liberalism. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for, for those arguments uh, developed by some great scholars. But I think, you know, we need to bring materialism back into it. And, you know, while the language limited the way people uh, engaged with these issues, it, they had this very visceral experience of not having enough water, of having the water shut off for 20 hours a day, of smelling the uh, uh, sewage that are in all these local rivers that flow through the center of town, of seeing uh, very high infant mortality rates, you know, experiencing the loss of, of children, uh, siblings, um, or, or neighbors on, on just a very regular basis. Uh, I think all these factors kind of combine to help galvanize uh, a sense of grievance, uh, a, a new demand for a different kind of politics, uh, a greater level of government intervention to start solving some of these urban, environmental, and public health uh, problems that have been endemic in the region for decades and that the political elite had really failed to address. Can you develop the infant mortality dimension of this? When precisely does infant mortality peak in West Ham? And when does it really begin to come down in significant ways? So in some ways, West Ham follows the kind of broader uh, London and national trend. Uh, infant mortality is on the rise during the 1890s. Uh, the brought in a medical officer of health, a new medical officer of health in the late 1880s. And he's just struggling for the first decade and a half uh, that he's in the job to deal with crisis after crisis. And in part, it's the weather. In the uh, 1890s, they have a series of quite hot summers, uh, which really exacerbates uh, the urban environmental problems uh, with you know, high levels of human waste and horse manure uh, in the city uh, and the kind of cloud of flies that would uh, uh, develop over a hot summer to spread the germs uh, from uh, the privies and, and the leaking pipes back into the households and you know, into the, the infant food supply, the tins of milk or, or what have you. So the 1890s are, are bad years, but we have this kind of tool uh, called the sanitary test that Graham Mooney developed, uh, I think, in the late, uh, late 1990s, uh, of just looking how at how uh, one municipality does compared to other municipalities. Uh, and you can see that West Ham is kind of underperforming in the 1890s. In the 18, early 1880s, it's kind of in the middle of the pack. If we look across Greater London, uh, infant mortality rates are, are fairly high, but uh, you know they're similar to a place like Fulham or uh, other 
similarly located districts on the western edge of of London at the time. Uh, and then at the end of the 1890s, they're uh, they're amongst the worst. They're one of the worst regions in Greater London. And they're in fact uh, reaching a level where they're you know one of the worst across uh, England and Wales. They they get to the point at the peak, which I think is in 1899. I think is the worst year, uh, where it's more than one in five uh, infants are dying before the age of one. So really, uh, quite startling numbers. Numbers that were common in, in uh, quite a few cities in, in Europe in the 19th century, uh, but in a, a few decades earlier, it was maybe. Uh, 180 or so per thousand and, and had climbed up to the, the low 200s per thousand in, in the worst years at the end of the 1890s. And then we see a, a kind of a pretty remarkable turnaround, partly because the, the weather uh, gets better for infant mortality, at least they have cooler summers for the first uh, decade of the 19th century, right through till about 1911. Uh, but second of all, we see a pretty significant interventionist policy from the municipal government. They give the medical officer of health, Charles Sanders, uh, new resources, uh, new employees, and they decide to actually start going uh, house by house instead of waiting for complaints from the residents. Uh, they'd actually target the worst districts uh, and, and um, look for any problems, particularly with drainage. Uh, and then demand that the landlords uh, fix the problems. If the landlord didn't fix the problem, uh, they'd send their own workers in to fix the problem and bill the landlord and, and take them to court. So they kind of became much, much more aggressive, uh, which was a big shift in local politics because uh, a few years earlier, it was the landlords themselves that sort of dominated city council, and there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for this kind of aggressive approach. But with the rise of... of labor and, and even a few of the, the more centrist liberals willing to back this uh, in the first decade of the 20th century uh, they, they fixed thousands of broken drains across the region they try and make sure that every household has a, a garbage pail with a lid uh, that helps control the fly population to a certain extent they increase the effort to wash the streets which is a, a uh, an effort to uh, get rid of the, the horse manure. And of course, this also coincides with the pretty steep decline in the horse population. Uh, somewhere around the middle of the first decade of the 20th century, uh, you really see the internal combustion engine start re replacing many of the horses in the city. So that helps the situation. But we get to this, this next hot summer in, in 1911, and see that West Ham does much better. It's back in sort of the middle of the uh, pack amongst the other uh, local districts across Greater London. Uh, you know, it's not keeping up with Hampstead that drops under one death per uh, per ten live births, um, but it it gets uh, down much closer to the range of sort of one point five, which is you know, pretty impressive improvements in the course of a decade. And those improvements just continue into the uh, teens and, and 20s uh, until uh, 
West Ham kind of follows the rest of most of the rest of the nation to where it's much lower infant mortality. And so can we say then uh, that this shift toward a more, uh, a more aggressively interventionist uh, labor or social democratic politics really quite remarkably improves the living conditions of people in West Ham. I mean, over the space of a decade, it sounds like the infant mortality rate dropped by about a quarter. Is that about right? Yeah. And it, it's very kind of, uh, it improves the most in the worst parts of West Ham. So they kind of paid attention to the different wards, the different regions, and you see the, the steepest declines in the most impoverished districts that sort of had the shockingly high infant mortality rates. Uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, and, and, and see really impressive improvements in, in the decade that followed. You know, it's, I think, crucial to point out that the labor group itself is only in power for two years. So it's, it's this broader shift because they can win an election. You see uh, the response from the uh, Tory and liberal politicians is actually to uh, form uh, the municipal alliance. They come together uh, to have a, a single uh, block uh, against uh, the labor group and you know, are fairly successful for the next decade in holding on to power. But they always have to uh, you know, their, their politics are dread much further towards this kind of uh, social democratic intervention, uh, probably quite often reluctantly, but knowing that if they uh, don't, if, if they're not seen to be kind of aggressively improving these urban environmental conditions, the risk of losing the election and letting the Labour uh, Party come back into power is over kind of uh, hanging over all the decisions they make in that first decade of the 20th century. How do they handle the question of the water supply? Uh, this is dealt with actually nationally. So this whole election is uh, fought over uh, the labor group's willingness to be really aggressive on, on bringing about a municipal supply of water. Um, but in the end, the, the national government uh takes control of the eight water companies. Uh, they don't want the city of the, the County of London, the London County Council to have control. There's uh, a long history of the national government struggling to limit the power of, of this, uh, this very large metropolis in, in, in the capital. Um, so kind of the compromise solution is to, uh, to create kind of a separate government-owned water utility to supply water to the whole region. So that's, I think, finally enacted in the first year or two of the 20th century. You close the book by discussing fixing the river and, and to some extent then fixing society. Can you tell us about what you mean by that? So, yeah, the, the last chapter of my book is a, a kind of very detailed look at something that doesn't happen. Um, it's this effort during a uh, prolonged unemployment crisis that starts in about 1904 uh, to use this kind of new opportunity with uh, money for public works uh, for the unemployed to finally address the, the flooding and, and, uh, and terrible condition of those back rivers in the lower Lee Valley. So, 
it begins with um, kind of two crises overlapping. There's a major flood in 1897, a second major flood in 1904. It does you know, considerable damage to factories and housing in the low-lying areas of West Ham. Uh, West Ham can be hit from flooding in kind of th- three different ways. A heavy storm uh, can just create localized flooding, and I think did just about every year. A really heavy storm can create this kind of rush of water coming from uh, the upper Lee and in the middle Lee Valley because there'd been so much development up there and uh, so many canals had replaced the river. It really sped up how fast the water moved down uh, the Lee into the lower Lee. And then it hits these uh, centuries old bridges and uh and tidal mills that just sort of stops it and, and leads to flooding. And finally, uh, you can get these big storms coming up the Thames estuary. Uh, and, and most of the worst floods are, are caused by uh, just these huge waves, uh, storm surges coming up the estuary and, and then uh, going over the flood defenses. So uh, you have these regular and then occasional uh, extreme floods and this combines or overlaps in 1904 with the beginning of a, a, a pretty deep recession uh, that hits West Ham particularly hard. Uh, one, because you know they shut down the docks for a few weeks. Uh, a number of major factories start either closing or significantly uh, reducing their production. But also, I this is, is sort of the moment that West Ham stops growing really quickly. So a whole lot of people who worked in the building industry uh, are thrown out of work. There's less houses being built, less factories being built. So all that comes together to make West Ham kind of the, uh, the focus of this unemployment crisis uh, in, in 1904, 1905. Uh, national newspapers and, and London-wide newspapers like the Evening Telegraph, you know, raise money to help the unemployed in West Ham. And this is also just sort of a moment where national politicians start to rethink uh, unemployment. They start to recognize that there is this kind of category of the deserving unemployed, people who are uh, thrown out of work because of the economy, not because of their own moral failings. That's a concept that doesn't really exist in the 19th century. Uh, you know, people kind of believe there's always work and people who were unemployed were being too selfish, demanding too high a wage, or they were alcoholics or otherwise uh, work shy one way or another. This idea that the economy uh, just isn't producing enough jobs doesn't exist until about this time frame. So, you know, once you start to identify particularly male breadwinners as being kind of deserving, uh, being thrown out of work, uh, despite having good moral character, it becomes this kind of new social crisis, new focus for the governments and for the newspapers. And there's uh, legislation that's actually passed. It's a much watered down version of, of some of the big ideas uh, that were first proposed, but legislation to set up what were called distress committees uh, locally that could raise money on their own. Initially, there's no national money to support them. Uh, but they could raise money and do uh, various kinds of public work projects. Some uh, were a bit ambitious, like buying a farm outside of the city and getting these uh, urban working class men to go spend three months farming. 
uh, with this kind of vague hope that they'd repopulate the countryside or maybe very send back, a, Very back to the land, isn't it? Yeah, back to the land. There's kind of a, an obsession with this idea of repopulating the countryside, maybe sending a bunch of people over to Canada and Australia. You know, it's was also in the back of their minds, but they, they really thought they'd break up these old uh, estates and, and, and find way more work for people on the land. Of course, that is kind of an utter failure. Uh, but they also take some of their resources and start doing kind of uh, public works projects in parks in and in, in nearby West Ham. So in the second winter of this recession, they do this big project to dig out a kind of, uh, there had been a lake in this spot, but it had dried up uh, and there was uh, you know, minor flooding problems in the area. So, you know, basically they buy a lot of shovels and wheelbarrows and, and bring thousands of unemployed men uh, to dig out this lake, pour some concrete uh, and, and create this new kind of uh, recreation space, but also flood management space in, in, on the northern edge of the city. And it's this project, which is considered uh, hugely successful because almost all the money goes straight to uh, uh, giving these unemployed men uh, work. Uh, gets the engineer, West Ham's Burroughs engineer, uh, thinking maybe I can use the unemployed next year to clean out some of these rivers. And so he writes the uh, engineer at the Lee Conservancy Board who are uh, tasked with managing the, the canal section of the Lee uh, and, and proposes kind of this joint project between West Ham and the Lee Conservancy Board funded by uh, national money. The Liberals had just won an election and were uh, willing to put some money in supporting these unemployed workers. Um, they, you know, they kind of started to dream big and they come up with this very ambitious plan uh, to completely remake the Lower Lee River, uh, to dig canals, put proper sort of cement canal walls, uh, you know, a very large multi-year project uh, that they, they imagine might get funding. Uh, it seems to correlate with a, a debate that's happening inside of the Liberal cabinet and also between the Liberals and uh, the, the New Labour Party about this idea of a right to work. Uh, the Labour Party has, has proposed that everybody who wants to work should be allowed to work and the government should be responsible for finding jobs for those that you know there aren't jobs in the economy for. The Liberal Party is not interested in, in supporting anything that radical, uh, but it does get a few of them thinking they need to, to do something fairly big to put a lot more money into these public works projects. In the end, uh, that side of cabinet loses out in a, a much more restrictive uh, funding package from the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, comes forward. Uh, and in the same weeks and months that the ambitions of, of an expanded uh, unemployment relief from the national government uh, decline the ambitions of these two engineers also decline. They go from hoping to uh, do all of the back streams, the back rivers, to maybe doing one to eventually uh, giving up on the project altogether. And so the interesting thing is that uh, another 20 years goes by. There's another major flood in uh, 1928. 
uh, bigger than either the, the previous large floods. And of course, the economy collapses and unemployment skyrockets again at the end of the 1920s. So they finally do this project that, uh, that had been first proposed in 1908, uh, starting in 1930. So between 1930 and 1935, uh, they dramatically reshape the, the river network. They turn all these streams into canals. Um, and uh, they, in fact, move some of the rivers. They expand the road at the same time. So it's an even more ambitious plan. But we see the same two factors, this desire uh, to solve this uh, huge social problem of uh, prolonged unemployment in the region uh, with you know this decade-long desire to re-engineer the lower Lee uh, network so that it uh, could transport goods more efficiently and spur on the industrial economy finally comes to fruition, uh, but is ultimately a failure, at least in the second desire. The, the industrial economy by this point is in uh, a, a protracted decline. The bombing of the Second World War exacerbates it further and it never recovers in the second half of the 20th century. And so West Ham then it it's really a fascinating combination of the quite specific local circumstances of the river of the of the marshland there but also of national and even global uh both political and economic forces uh jim clifford it has been a real pleasure to speak to you i've learned a ton about this book uh and about about the topic uh, from this book um I have a hardcover copy. Do you know if there's a paperback edition on the way? The paperback's been out since March. Oh, has it's it? Oh, fantastic. Okay. Fairly reasonably priced. It's $32 Canadian. I can't remember the American price offhand. The but 20 to 25 probably then. Yeah. Uh, which means that this book, I think, would be a terrific candidate for uh, undergraduate or graduate seminars. And I'm strongly considering uh, assigning it in, in my own classes next year. So uh, would you like to tell us about your future projects? What do you, what do you have uh, on the horizon? Yeah, so part of, uh, of converting this project from a dissertation into a book uh, involves expanding the, the GIS database from all the factories in London to all the factories, or sorry, all the factories in West Ham to all the factories in Greater London uh, for both those time points that we have the five feet to the mile uh, maps for. And so that was a part of, of the next project that I've been sort of working on uh, off and on again over the past uh, six years now, uh, trying to explore instead of the local social and environmental consequences of industrialization in London, trying to look at the global uh, environmental consequences of these same factories. So by identifying all the factories in Greater London, I've, I've started to see a, a number of them that relied on uh, raw materials coming from the rest of the world. So leather, uh, which needed hides first from South America and, and by the end of the 19th century from just about everywhere in the world, but also uh, tannins and barks from all around the world. Uh, that quinine factory in, in West Ham needs chinchona, uh, first from uh, the Andes, and then there's this uh, huge effort to move it to Sri Lanka in southern India that uh, ultimately fails. 
So it's kind of exploring these different commodity histories and connecting them to the uh, industrial history of London and in the history of uh, of different kinds of uh, environmental consequences uh, at the sites of extraction or plantations um, in, in different parts of the world. Well, we look forward to hearing much more from you. And thank you very much for your time today. Once again, the book is Jim Clifford, West Ham and the River Lee, A Social and Environmental History of London's Industrialized Marshland, 1839 to 1914. Thank you so much. But it's been a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.